All right. First John chapter five. We left off. In verse 16, but I thought it would be smart, wise for us to go back over the last couple of verses just to review kind of what we talked about on Sunday. How many of you are here? We're here on Sunday. Just okay. There you go. First John chapter five, verse 14. We just looked at two verses on Sunday. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. A pretty uh, in-depth, I think, study of just the concept of prayer and how it's not what sometimes we make it out to be, meaning a lot of people think that, uh, for instance, these verses are just saying, hey, it's a blank check from God and you can ask for anything you want. Uh, You know, a Maserati, a Chateau in France, that kind of thing. What we really discovered, I think, on Sunday is that the key to having confidence, and that's that's probably one of the main words there, the key to having confidence that what we've asked he's heard is this. Is it according to his will? The key is praying what he already wants. And this was probably the biggest, for me anyway, the uh, biggest paradigm statement. And that is this petition, asking God, real prayer as far as asking, is not twisting God's arm to do that which he doesn't want to do, right? Is not changing his mind and going, I know you didn't want to do this, but hey, will you know? No, real prayer that you can have confidence in is finding out what God's up to and agreeing with that, right? It says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, really big words, but it's according to his will, he hears us and he responds and the answer is always yes, It's crazy. So petitioning is finding out what God's up to and agreeing with that, completing the circuit that God started in the first place. Now, here's the thing. I know this is a review for some of you, but how can we know God's will? If the key, think about it. Did you ever notice that Jesus never talked about unanswered prayer? Basically, he was never like, you know, I prayed for this and it didn't happen. All of Jesus' prayers were answered yes. Because he always prayed the will of the Father, right? That which my Father wants to do is doing in heaven. That's what I do here on earth. The key to knowing God's will is you find it in John fifteen seven. So if you want to write this down, this is the key to having every single one of your prayers answered yes. Right? If you actually do this, every single one of your prayers will be answered yes. That's a pretty bold statement. But John fifteen seven, if you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. You'll ask for the right stuff, and it shall be done for you. Pretty amazing. John fifteen seven. If I was you, I would write that down, and I would spend the rest of my life pursuing that. Abide in me, Jesus says, and let my words abide in you. And we saw that that's how you can pray with confidence. Think about it. If his word, that is the word of God, which stands forever, abides in you, the, the way that you petition, the way you ask for things, is to pray scripture. To, to say that which God has already said and agree with it, complete the circuit. Um, let me give you an example. You need food. If you need food, you pray, Father, 
You say in your word, you feed the birds of the air and that you love me a lot more. Lord, provide food for me today. No matter what you ask, if we are asking in his will, according to his will, and right there you have your return receipt, right? That no matter what you ask, the answer is yes and amen. The deal is you'll be asking for the right things. Okay? This is meant to create tremendous, I think, confidence in God's kids in asking. But I thought I should take a little bit of time and clarify one thing tonight. John is not saying, and I want to make sure that you guys understand this. John is not saying, nor am I saying, nor is God saying, I don't hear your prayers unless you back it up with Scripture. You get that, right? See, I actually was, was talking with someone earlier in the week, and um, for, for a while, a short period of time, that's what they thought they heard me say. That's what they thought they heard the Scripture say. That, look, don't, what they, what they thought they heard was this, uh, don't go to God with uh, just anything, or make sure that the things that you're asking, the things that you're praying for uh, are backed up with Scripture. Listen, listen, listen. If, that's what, if you got anything close to that, you need to know God desires an ongoing, constant conversation with you, a real dialogue with you. You don't have to be second-guessing yourself and saying, did, did I just ask something for him out of his will or in his will? Well, let me just be as clear as I can think of. If you're angry, even if you shouldn't be, tell him. If you're worried, even though you shouldn't be, tell him. Run to him with everything. Have a dialogue with him. Verses 14 and 15 are simply meant to bring confidence in our petitions. That is, the asking for stuff. And I think you, sh you should be feel free to ask for stuff that you can't get a return receipt for. But you're just, it's just a fact. You're probably not going to have that much confidence, right? I don't, I don't see anywhere where God says don't ask for uh, something that might not be in my will. But you're not going to have confidence. It's interesting to me how much the devil hates us. That he can take scriptures that are meant to bring confidence to our askings. And he can turn that, at least for one person over this last week, into confusion about all prayer. What's supposed to be confidence in petitions becomes confusion in prayer. See, don't let the devil do that to you. This is only about asking. When you ask something that you know is in his will, he says, look, you can know that you've been heard, that you've been listened to. Okay? Um, let me give you one more example. Again, to just bring it in perspective, James chapter 1, verse 5. This is one of my favorite return receipts. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, that sure sounds like a promise to me. I don't know if any of you guys have had me pray for you about something, especially about wisdom. I hope that you've heard those words come out of my mouth because I feel like I'm saying them all the time. I pray this way all the time. Lord, you've promised wisdom when we ask for it. So I'm asking for it and I'm expecting you to give it to me. And I ask and I know he's heard me and I know that the answer was yes. That means he's given me wisdom. I know you guys are all thinking, let us be the judge of that. 
My response to that is, you have no idea how unwise I was before. This, this whole thing is to, to bring confidence in our request. He actually hears you and he actually responds to that which you can prove is in his will, right? That you have that return receipt for, okay? Now, the, the, the next verses that we're going to look at tonight are basically, I think, John saying, oh, here's a great way to apply that. I've just given you a great way to have confidence in this prayer life that I want you to have. Here's a great way to apply it. You ready? Stand in the gap. Pray for others, especially the sinning brother. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, I am betting that right here we have one more example of the devil's desire to get us off track. Because... John's encouragement, I think, right here is to what? To pray for the sinning brother. But what are almost all of us thinking? What's that sin at least to death? (laughs) Right? His whole purpose is to try to get us to pray for the sinning brother. But instead, our first thoughts go to uh, what's that sin that leads to death? Well, I spent the last half of last week and the first half of this week researching that question. And the more educated I got, the more confused I became. Some say that the death that's spoken of here is eternal death. Some say, no, no, it's, it's physical death. Some say that the sin is a specific sin. Some others say, no, it's a state of sin. Some say that the sin can be done by a brother. Others say, no, it's not done by a brother. It's by an unbeliever, meaning it's someone who who says they're a believer. I consulted every commentator that I knew. And you know what they say about that, right? Some taters are more common than others. Each theologian that I studied would undo the thing that the last one had done in my brain. First, there are a few things that I think we can be sure of that John is not referring to. Verses 16 and 17 is not referring to that Catholic doctrine of mortal sin versus venial sins. I didn't even know what those words really meant. So I went to my resident Catholic expert back there through the door, Philip. And uh, so if any of this is wrong, you can blame him. But this this is my understanding. That the official Catholic doctrine says that when you are saved, as, as a, you know, a practicing Catholic, you are not imputed with righteousness, meaning declared fully righteous and it, it's a done deal, but you are infused with righteousness. Um, like that you get a big dose of righteousness, that you get a big shot of righteousness, uh, that you get your, your grace battery gets completely charged. And it, or if you're a video gamer, uh, you get that extra life. Okay. And again, this is, if you, if it's not right, just talk to Philip. I have no idea. But that he says that the, the, the idea in some Catholics is that you have to keep doing good works to get your, keep your battery charged. Um, and that there's this idea of mortal sins, which are like felonies, 
and venial sins, which are like misdemeanors, like mulligans, like guineas. Um, and according to Philip, according to that doctrine, if you commit a mortal sin, it's kind of like you go back to square one, meaning you drain the battery of grace, if you were. Not that you go to hell, but if you were to die in that particular state and not be able to recharge your battery, that you would go to this place called purgatory. Okay? That's my understanding uh, as of today of, of what that doctrine is. Verse 16 is not any of that. There's all sorts of problems with that doctrine. First, the Bible says that grace is offered once for all. Right? It's not of works lest any man should boast. The Bible doesn't talk about as being infused. It talks about being imputed, this righteousness being given as a free gift to us, right? The Bible's consistent. There's only one sin that's not forgivable through that free gift of grace bought by Jesus' death. That is rejecting the Son, right? Rejecting the Son on this earth is not forgivable um, after, after you pass on. So this is not referring to or supporting in any way that I can see that that doctrine, if I'm understanding it right, mortal versus venial sins. So what in the world is John saying here? Well, let's read verse 16 again. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So the big question is, number one, what is the sin leading to death or the state of sin leading to death? And number two, what kind of death are we talking about? Well, let me give you some of the the thinking, what, you know, some of the commentators say. Some say that the sin that he's referring to here is apostasy and that the death that he's referring to here is eternal death. Now, actually, that makes total sense to me, and I hope you'll see why. If If, if so, then John is saying, look, you can have confidence in intercessory prayer and you can pray for your sinning brother, but here's the caveat. I am not commanding you to pray for those Gnostics that I told you about in chapter 2. He, now, notice again that carefully how he worded it. He does not say, I'm commanding you not to pray for them. What he says is, I'm not commanding you to pray for them. You see the difference? See, I think what he might be saying is, look, you can have confidence, um, but if you pray about that particular group of people who already denounced Jesus and the, the Jesus that they believe is completely different than the Jesus that we believe that don't necessarily expect that they're going to come running to you and say, I've repented. It, it may or may not happen that way. Now, if you look at, at those verses, though, you might see a problem with that. Verse 16, it says, if anyone sees his brother, that could potentially be the hole in the ship that brings that theory down. But... I'm not so sure, because remember, again, there was a time when everybody that John is writing to called the people in chapter 2 brothers. Look at it. Turn to chapter 2, verse 18. He says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Or if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So do you see it? It could be that John is saying, 
look, pray for your brother, but there are some that through continual rejection of the plain truth are, are proving that they're not brothers, right? So perhaps John is saying, look, a guy says he's a brother. He denounces the true and living Christ and, and says, no, I'm following after this phantom Christ or I'm following after this Christ uh, that, that lets me do what I want. I'm following after the Christ of my own making. Then perhaps John is saying, look, you can pray for everybody, um, but you can have confidence for most. But this type of person, I, I'm not promising you. It could be that. Okay. Others say, no, 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 you're all wrong. This is not written about that apostasy kind of person, but it's written about believers. And so then their, their question is, what kind of death is this? That would be physical death. And that totally makes sense, too. The idea is, look, you can be saved. You can be eternally secure, right? One of God's kids. And you can mess up your life so bad down here that God decides it's better for everyone if he takes you home. Uh, J. Vernon McGee tells a story that I just had to lift. So, you guys ready? Hopefully you guys have figured out that when I lift something, it's because it's really good. <laughs> you guys are blessed to, to get the best stuff. <clears throat> J. V. McGee says, uh, J. Vernon McGee says, uh, let's say that you're a mom. I love the way he did this. You're a mom and your darling angel of a son goes to play with the brat next door. And 30 minutes later, you hear a hollering from that brat. And you, you look out the window and your darling angel is beating the stuffings out of that brat next door. And you're the mom. And you say, now, Billy, if you can't play nice, I'm going to have to bring you home. And Billy says, OK, mama, I'll do better. And another 30 minutes later, she hears that familiar wail of that brat next door being beaten by her son. What's going to happen? She's going to go out there and have that conversation with John. He's going to say, but, but mom, uh, uh, uh. and at some point, she's going to just bring Johnny home because it's safer for everybody. Right? She still loves Johnny completely, but it's safer to bring him home. So, yeah, there are times when sin leads to death. I mean, Actually, the Bible says wait, the wages of sin is death, right? So I guess you could say the wages of sin is death, and for some sin, payday comes quicker than others, right? If that's the context, then, then what John, John is saying is, look, you can be confident in prayer, right? And you should pray for your sinning brother, and God will add life to his years and years to his life, but... Perhaps John is saying, but there comes a time when even the prayers of a faithful saint who's confident in his prayers aren't enough to keep the Lord from taking a willfully disobedient child home. Okay, those are the possible theories. Now, this is what I find fascinating, you guys. How much time did we just spend on that? And what I find fascinating is if we're not careful, we can miss the obvious exhortation that John is making for sure. We can miss the for sure thing that he's telling us to do because of the maybes or the perhapses that we're trying to figure out. We can miss the proverbial forest for the trees, right? It reminds me of a story I heard. Sherlock Holmes, 
and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. After sharing a good meal and a bottle of wine, they retired to their tent for the night. At about 3 a.m., Holmes nudges Watson and asks, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see millions of stars. Holmes asks, now what does that tell you? Well, wanting to get it right, Watson says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me that it's about 3 a.m. Meteorologically, it tells me that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? It tells me someone stole our tent. Right? You can theorize what, what the verses mean in, in theory and then miss the obvious. You can also miss the practical. One more. Holmes and Watson are taking a trip across a desert by a hot air balloon. There are not many landmarks, so eventually they, they become lost. And, and luckily, while flying quite low, they see a man. Holmes shouts out, sir, uh, could you please tell me where we are? The man looks up, ponders for a moment, and then answers, gentlemen, you are in a hot air balloon. At this moment, a burst of wind picks up the balloon and carries it away. Holmes turns to Watson and asks, my friend, do you know who that man is? No, Holmes, of course not. Well, he's a mathematician. Holmes, that's incredible. But how did you know that? Well, it's very simple, Watson. First of all, the man thought before he gave us an answer. Secondly, his answer was absolutely correct. And thirdly, the answer he gave us was of no practical use whatsoever. See, there's something obvious in verses 16 and 17. There's an application, you guys, in verse 16 and 17. Look at it, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life. Let me actually just remove those words that are stumbling you still, probably. If anyone sees his brother sinning, he will ask and he will give him life. Do you guys see that the practical obvious exhortation, the application that's hidden within all of these theological theories, pray for your sinning brother. John says, look, I, I'm not asking you to pray for that kind that leads to death, but we spend all our time trying to figure out what that kind is, and he never tells us not to pray for that person. So here's an idea. How about we just pray for the sinning brother, confident or not? Instead of going, well, I don't, I'm not sure if I should pray this because I'm not sure that it's in his will and I'm not sure if he's going to answer. How about this? Just pray for the sending brother and let God sort it out. See, here's the point. It's huge and we almost miss it. God is looking for intercessors. Amen. And he's looking for intercessors for your sinning brothers and sisters. Did you all see that you could be that person that James says in James chapter 5, verse 20, you could be the one who saves a soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. Here we are commanded and encouraged to pray for that sinning brother or sister. Now, it probably should be said. Notice it does not say, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, that he should gossip. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, he should uh, get in their face. Well, the Bible does say that there comes a time for confrontation, but apparently it's not your first course of action. 
first course of action would be to pray for them. So let me ask you, don't don't point. But do you know anyone struggling with sin? Don't point. Some of you are tempted. Do you know somebody struggling with sin? Are you praying for them? See, right after John spends verses 14 and 15 making us confident in prayer, he says, God is just waiting for someone to pray. Because he wants to give life, it says, to that person. That person who's struggling. When's the one time, and I think we can all answer to this, when's the one time that you feel like you can't pray? It's when you're in sin. Who's going to stand in the gap? God is waiting to give life. And that word life, we've seen that word, love that word, is zoe. Not only is it physical life, but it's life abundant. It's uh, life enjoyable. It's life that actually amounts to something. It's the kind of life that Jesus talked about when he said, I have come that they might have life and that more abundant. I think we forget that God is just waiting to answer prayers like that. Application should be pretty obvious, right? Pray for those who you just thought of who are struggling in sin. Now, we're going to move on from here. I want you to see that that John finishes these last few verses with three we know statements. Do you see that? Where he says, we know. And then he says, verse 19, 18, he says, we know. Verse 19, he says, we know. And verse 20, we know. You guys remember, one of the reasons that John wrote this was because of those Gnostics. Remember, Gnostics means knowledge. These were the guys that had special knowledge. They would probably go around and say, we know something you don't know. Right? That was the heresy of the Gnostics, was have this hidden knowledge that, that you don't really know. But if you hang with us, you know, we, we can teach you some stuff. And that's how they seduced, was with their Hidden knowledge. Things that, well, you just can't pick this up from the Bible. You've got to stick with us. Knowledge was their seduction. So I find it fascinating that John closes the book by saying, hey, we know a couple things too. Look at verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, if you weren't with us before, you're like, oh, man, that creates a whole new set of confusion. But very easily understood when you realize this, that the tense of the verb means this. Whoever is born of God does not keep on continually, habitually, as a lifestyle, continue to sin. If you're born again, if you've really been converted, if you've had a new birth, you can't just go on with your life exactly as it was. Yeah, yeah, you can fall into sin, but you're going to be miserable. You're going to totally hate it. Right? Again, uh, J. Vernon McGee said the difference between the uh, the prodigal son and the pigs is the pigs can stay in the slop but the prodigal son he just knows it's like no I can't I can't stay here I got to run back to my father he says look we know that whoever is born of God does not keep on continually as a lifestyle sin but he who has has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him so first, in his conclusion, John says, basically, look, if, if we know this. If you're saved, you can't go on sinning as a lifestyle. And if you're born again, that new nature compels you 
to guard yourself. And look at it, and he says, and the wicked one does not touch him. The Bible says right here that the devil can't really lay a hand on you. Do you know that? Now, some of you are thinking, some of you are thinking, wait, apparently he can lay a hand on my bank account. I don't know about that, but listen, you need to know, truly, the devil can't really lay a glove on you. The, the word touch there, this will make help you. Uh, it actually means to cling to, to fasten oneself to, to uh, adhere to. This is one of the many verses, by the way, that refute the idea that some Christians have that a Christian can be demon possessed. Some people think that you can be demon possessed even as a Christian. I, I don't believe it. I don't see anything in this verse. Matter of fact, refutes that. Listen, Christians can be oppressed by the devil. Some Christians are demon obsessed. But you can't be possessed by the devil and still be a Christian. Think about it. The Bible says that God is greater than he who is in the world, right? If he lives inside of you, it can't be possible. God does not have a timeshare plan with the devil. Right? He doesn't be like, okay, it's your day. You're up. Okay, I'm next. My turn. Yes, the devil can give you fits. He can mess with you. He he wants to mess with you. His He is chomping at the bit. He, I mean, he would love to steal and to kill and to destroy you. Remember when uh, Jesus said to Peter, the devil has asked for you to sift you like wheat, right? He says, but I've prayed for you. Seems to me like God's in control there. The devil had to even ask permission. Okay? If you are saved, listen, and, and this not only should give you security, but also kind of takes away your excuse too, right? Because if you're saved, you can't say, oh, the devil made me do it. And you can't say the devil made me do it. Really, if you're truthful, you need to say the devil suggested it and I liked it. I agreed. I complied. Uh, the illustration that I came up with a few years ago, and I, I kind of like it. Hopefully you will. I don't know. That it's like the devil used to be able to, because he could be inside your house, could burn your house down from the inside. But now the best he can do is stand on the outside, throw in a thing of matches and go, hey, light your house on fire for me, would you? It's like, hey, why don't you just light that couch on fire and you'll be, you'll, you'll be happy. And the thing is that sometimes Christians just do it. It's no longer the power of compulsion. He can't make us do anything. But it's the power of persuasion that we fall for. See, in short, John, I think, wants us to, to realize as we come to the end of this book, look, guys, we're protected. We're protected. We don't have to fall for that stuff. So, number one, we know, he says, that we are protected. But number two, verse 19, we know that we are privileged. Look at it. We know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are privileged. We are the minority, but we are so privileged. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Earlier in this book, I illustrated it like this. When you when you step back and you take a look at the the world, 
And when I say the world, I mean the philosophies of the world, not the people of the world, but the philosophies, the politics, the power, the practices of the world. Okay. When you step back, you're kind of aghast because you notice that all of the world is like under the hand of the puppet master. Right. When you follow the strings back to the source of all of the power, philosophy, politics, all of it, you find that the puppet master, the devil, has the world on a string right now. But here's the thing, guys. When you take another step back and you see more clearly, you can rejoice. Because the guy who has the world on the string is himself on a leash. And the hand that holds a leash is nail scarred. Y'all, we're not supposed to be discouraged. We're supposed to be encouraged. He says, look, the whole world lies under the sway, under the influence of the wicked one. But we know that we are of God. Do you see? He's saying we are so privileged. Yes, we are like sheep among wolves. Yes, it's scary. But we know that we are of God. Um, J. Vernon McGee, again, the picture that he paints, he's like, it's kind of like the whole world is asleep in the arms of the enemy. But we've been rescued. We've been awakened and rescued by God. So we know that we are protected and we know that we're privileged. If you're writing down P's, protected and privileged, I've got three more for you. You ready? Verse 20 We know that the Son of God is present and that he grants us perception and that he seeks a personal relationship. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. The Son of God, John says, is present. Again, you've got to think of it in context of the Gnostics. Right. They were the the guys, again, special knowledge. Well, we happen to know that Jesus was didn't really come in flesh and blood. I mean, he was a spirit. He. When he walked, when you would walk with him and you'd look behind you, you'd see uh, your footprints, but not his, because he was a phantom. He was a, a spirit. He didn't really come in flesh and bones. John says, don't ever forget, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. Number one, that says, look, he's come in the flesh. And you, you, if you don't believe that, you can look back at the beginning of the, of the book, first couple of verses. John comes right out of the box and says, That which was in the beginning, which uh, we have seen, which we've heard, which we have handled with our own hands. Say, John's whole point, one of them is, look, he came in the flesh and listen, he's just as real now. He is present. But not only that, he grants perception. It says, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us an understanding. This is why, guys, people look at you and think you're crazy. Because he's real and he's present, but he's not perceived by anybody but you. Hello, invisible friend. But he's come and he's granted you perception. He's granted you understanding as your own personal rabbi. Is that amazing? That God the Son comes to you and gives you understanding, gives you a perception that he's real, that he's truly available to you. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. We know, we know that the, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. And here's the reason why. Here's to what end that we may know him. 
Say that with me. That we may know him. He is present. He's present right now. He grants perception that he's present. And the reason he does it is that we may know him. That last P, if you're looking for it, is personal relationship. Oh, now we've come back full circle. Sean's goal from the very beginning. It's like, I have this relationship with Jesus and I want you to have it too. Personal relationship is the end game for Jesus. He wants a personal relationship with you. He's made a personal relationship with a holy God a real possibility. Meaning it's real. He's real. And he, this relationship is there for the taking. Mark 3.14. You can turn there if you want. Or you can believe me what it says. It says, Then he, Jesus, appointed twelve, and John was one of those, then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Does that strike anybody else as weird at first? I mean, here Jesus comes to save the whole world, right? It's like, okay, I'm a man on a mission. I've got my, okay, there's my twelve main guys. I'm appointing you to, you would think that the first thing would be to go out and preach or to heal the sick or whatever, right? First thing he says, he's appointed them to be with him. Do you see it? Our Savior seeks personal relationship with you. Let me just underline that as strong as I can. He's not looking for what you can do for him. He's not looking for what you can do for him. He's just looking for a relationship. You may think that he chose you primarily to send you out to preach. To utilize that great skill set that he's given you. No, believe it or not, he chose you that you might be with him. I know sometimes it's hard for me to grasp, too. He didn't choose me for my good looks. Okay, that was a joke. <laughs> you guys are definitely asleep. If you think about me and good looks, that you should have been laughing really quick. He didn't choose me for what I can bring to the table. He didn't choose me because of all the, the great things that I can offer him. Are, are you enjoying... That relationship that he wants with you. I have an, a bunch more peace here in this one sentence. Are you enjoying that privileged possibility of perceiving his presence? Because that's why he came. He says, I'm present and, I, and I'm making it where you can perceive it. Now, are you enjoying that privileged possibility? That, that's what the whole book, book boils down to, isn't it? Are you enjoying that privileged possibility of perceiving his presence. Don't make me say it again. It all boils down to fellowship with God, which is exactly where we started. Okay? Now, next, as we close here, you guys get to say one word. See if you see the trend. You guys say the word true. Ready? That we may know him who is, and we are in him who is, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the God and eternal life. 
that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. I think, again, John is contrasting his Jesus, the true Jesus, with that of the Gnostics. Because you could substitute for true there, you could uh, substitute the word genuine or real. He's saying, we, we know we have the real Jesus. See, he's saying to those tempted by the, that Gnostic teaching, right? Which is, well, God, Jesus is kind of ethereal and, you know, he's not, never really a man. He's saying to these guys, his last, near, nearly his last salvo is this, guys, don't, don't trade the real for a fake. Right? When people knock on your door and they, they say, well, I know the Bible says this, but our Bible, our special Bible over here says this. Don't trade the real for a fake. The real God that is eternal life, it says, is only found through the Christ of the Bible. Right? We are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he says, this is the true God and eternal life. You're not going to find God in any other place or person or any other thing than in Jesus, who is the son of God. Without the son, you don't have the father. John says both in his gospel and in, in this letter. Okay. John ends then. Look at verse 21. With what seems to me like the weirdest ending ever of any apostle. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. <laughs> Doesn't it seem like he's writing and he's like, oh, man, look at the time. I got to go to my son's soccer game. <laughs> or maybe maybe he's run out of the scroll and he's like, OK, writing it on the side of the margin. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Somewhere it seems like. Wow, is this like, is it just like a, a thought that, is it connected? Is it, is he running out of room? What is it? Well, a few thoughts, a few ideas. One is that if you look up the definition for that word idol, interesting to me, the second one down says it's used of shades of the departed, apparitions, specters, phantoms of the mind, etc. And what were the Gnostics promoting? That was that not a real Jesus, but a specter, a phantom Jesus. So it could be that he was actually being fairly literal, saying, look, avoid that Jesus. Okay, the, the one that didn't really come in, in a personal, real, physical body. But also, though, really, do you remember that? What's the theme of the book? Fellowship with the father, right? Fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. You can look back, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. You see that where He says, we enjoy this fellowship and we want you to enjoy this fellowship. You can have a real relationship, a real fellowship with a living God. And the whole book is talking about preserving that. How do you keep that? What Confession, right? Chapter 1, verse 9. The way to keep that, that fellowship, that sweet fellowship going with, with the Lord is to... to Keep short accounts just to confess when you're wrong. It says when we do, he's faithful to, and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1 and, and 2, he's like, look, but when you do sin, we, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, right? He goes through all the book uh, talking about fending off deception and all of it as a whole. Basically, it's this. I want you to keep that fellowship. I want you to keep that relationship with God. Well, let me ask you. Can you think of a quicker way to destroy fellowship with God than 
idolatry? I mean, is, is there any quicker way to destroy fellowship with God than to bring another God to the party? Right? The, the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In case you ever misunderstood, sometimes we think before means I don't want any God ahead of me, place number one. Actually, the, the word before means literally in my view, in my space. Don't bring any other gods to the party. That's what he's saying. And guaranteed, when you bring in a, a rival god, the, the awareness of the true and living God departs. It's like, uh, I'm not going to share. Again, he's not into time sharing, right? When you bring another God to the party, the one true living God, he does not leave you nor forsake you, but that fellowship does that, like, that feeling that, like, where'd he go? It's because the, you're breaking the very first commandment, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols, he says. To me, it's actually a very practical way to say, uh, here's another way to sum it up, right? Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, I have no idols. I don't have a, something on my dashboard or I don't have, you know, this or that. Well, let me burst your bubble a little bit. What's the first thing you think of when you wake up? If it's not the Lord, you might want to check that out. What do you think about most of the day? Potentially, that could be your idol. What, what things do you indulge in in your, your life or your mind or, or whatever that when you do, fellowship with God seems to disappear? Well, that's a sure sign of an idol. It's John's last warning in regards to fellowship with God that he wants, that he's saying, look, you can have this fellowship. The thing that he's trying to preserve, his very last words are, uh, guard yourself, he says. Keep yourselves. That, that means literally to guard, right? It's a military word. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Be on the lookout for those idols and keep them away so that you can en continually enjoy this fellowship with my Father and my Savior. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this, this letter. Lord, I thank you even more for the, the uh, I was going to say the author, Lord, but you're the author. But thank you for the one that you, you chose to pin the words. Lord, we've spent quite some time now reading the, the gospel of John. And this letter from John. Thank you, Lord, uh, for how you transformed him by being with him, Lord. Having him be with you. Lord, we want to be transformed that same way. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to abide in you and help your words to abide in us. Lord, we want to have a, a dynamic, a, an active, a, a joyous prayer life. We want to have fellowship with you that's real. It's not imagined, that's not uh, theoretical, but that we experience every day, Lord, every hour. Lord, I thank you for these, your saints, and their patience, Lord, with me. Thank you, Lord, for their attentiveness to your word. I ask, Lord, that you would do 
that which only you can do. You would, uh, you'd help us, Lord, to, to follow your word, to let it uh, sink deep down in us, Lord, that it might abide in us and that we might abide in you. We love you and thank you. Ask you now to help us in this time of application as well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.